another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. With us today is Dr. Brian Caulfield, who is an Associate Professor and Head of Discipline in the Department of Civil, Structural and Environmental Engineering here in Trinity. Brian is uh, an expert in how to decarbonize transport systems. And, and in that guise, he's talked to people in Dublin, uh, people developing new strategies, new plans for, for, for the capital, but also, of course, further afield. He also advises uh, the authorities in Washington, D.C. And, and many other places. And what we want to talk about today is, should we get cars out of the city centre? How can we do that? And how, I suppose, can we decarbonize transport? And how can uh, people engaged in kind of academic research, such as Brian, who's published 180 papers in this in this area, how can we actually influence uh, public policy and, and what it's like to be to be an advisor to government on such a difficult, thorny, and seemingly intractable issue. But anyway, first of all, welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Tom. Let, let, let's start, Brian, with um, uh, your, your new recent research. You've recently received uh, received quite a few grants to, to kind of tackle areas around the decarbonation, decarbonization of, of transport. But let's take a step back. You know, you're still relatively young in, in academic terms. How did you get interested in this area? Um, what, what, what led you to, to the point where you're now helping to decarbonize the country? Okay, it, it, first of all, it's nice to be considered um, still quite young in academic circles. So that's, that's, that's a nice thing to hear. Um, I suppose I got interested in transport because it's it's the one of the things that we do every single day of the, the week, whether we want to or not. Um, transport is something that's kind of all around us. Um, it's what makes our cities, their countries um, um, run smoothly, um, whether it's travel to education or travel for recreational purposes, whatever it is. Everybody does it all of the time. So I suppose my research really focuses on how we can do that more sustainably um, and, and how we can do it um by saving time for, for passengers as well. And it kind of veers into, you know, the promotion of public transport and how we, you know, make public transport more accessible um, and more desirable for people to use and therefore in the longer term reduce, reduce emissions. But it's not only public transport, I suppose, that I was interested in. It's also walking and cycling. And then, you know, sweating asks that we currently have, you know, electrification of cars, I think is something that's important. But then also, you know, using kind of um, assets that we have in our cities, like, you know, the the Phoenix Park Tunnel or the the, more, the, the roadways in more efficient ways, say with buses and, and trams, um, to get people to move around more efficiently. And having a city like Dublin as my lab, that you can you can look to see how, how changes are happening and getting large um, amount of data to analyze how this is happening is something, you know, I suppose that's kind of my passion for for the topic. But where did this passion begin, Brian? Was it was it were you a teenager? Were you studying engineering? Uh, you realize this is really a kind of an interesting question to solve or where did you begin to realize that you were going to devote your life to this? Um, I suppose when it, when it began really was um, as as a child, I grew up in Waterford and uh, my grandparents would have lived in Dublin and coming up to Dublin and seeing 
the transport networks up in Dublin. And I remember my, my granddad didn't have a car and um, he would take the bus everywhere, walk or cycle everywhere. And I was fascinated by that to, to, to see how he was able to achieve all of those things w- without having a car. Um, and as a very small uh, kid with my brother, we would have been brought around the city um, in the bus. And it was always a real treat to come up to, to Dublin to see the bus. But once I left Dublin, the buses and public transport were never a thing back in Waterford um, um, for us to get around. So that, I suppose, was one of the things that, that you know, got my interest in it. And then as I, I as I studied my master's and then I came to Trinity to do my PhD in the area that I, you know, I could see that there was there was impact to happen there. I could see that, you know, there was a lot of change happening, um, perhaps not as quickly as we wanted it to happen. And then finding, you know, a home in civil engineering here in Trinity, where there's a massively long lineage of, of, of colleagues that have influenced the transport network across the city was a great home to find. Um, and that, you know, spurred me forward and, and, and enabled me to, you know, find my own voice and find my niche in research um, around decarbonisation of transport. Um, and that's where I am now. And hopefully now inspiring other people like me um, to come to come forward and to look at their own areas of research, be it transport or something else, um, and to show them the impact that they could possibly have. That's very interesting. So there's a there's a, a long tradition, as you say, in, in, in Trinity of trying to to help solve Ireland's transport problems. But presumably 30 years ago, that transport problem would have been how to get more cars onto the road, how to, you know, and now that now the problem has changed, hasn't it? The victim of our own success to a degree and the victim of climate change. Is that is that correct? Is that kind of that that would be correct. Um, the kind of things that I'm teaching now 30 years on in, in, in our department is very much about how to be leave the car behind. Um, while they, while students do get taught the fundamentals of road design and safe road design, which is very important, um, me and other colleagues look at how we can decarbonise transport and how we can shift people onto more sustainable modes. Because I suppose, you know, the car hasn't been around all that long. Um, cities have been around a lot longer than, than cars. And when we're trying to, you know, shoehorn in so many cars into a city centre like Dublin, it, it just doesn't work. Um, from a physical point of view, it doesn't work. Um, so, you know, we need to start to think about better ways of, of moving around our cities, how to use resources more efficiently. And I suppose, you know, that's at the, that's kind of the what I end up teaching and, and it's what my, what my passion is as well for research. Well, you know, you, you, you've had a, a practical application here, haven't you? Because the, the Greater Dublin area is planning on spending tens of billions of euros on on a kind of revised uh, or new or augmented, I should say, kind of transport infrastructure. And you've been advising them as a policy advisor. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? And I suppose what your advice is, is really, really interesting. <laughs> um, so um, I suppose how it came about was um, with lots of interaction with with the National Transport Authority um, and also previous colleagues like our current professor of civil engineering, Margaret Omani, and our previous professor of civil engineering, um, Simon Perry, would have also had such kind of policy roles. So having worked with the NTA and specifically in their traffic and transport modelling department, um, I suppose they would have known my expertise. They would have they would have valued what I had to say. Um, so I was invited onto the steering committee for the update and renewal of the of the strategy for for the city and sorry the Greater Dublin area out to 2042. Well, the key remit from the minister was to reduce emissions by um, 51% out to 2030. So how we went about doing that 
kind of changed, you know, how the normal modeling and how the normal policy formulation would have would have happened. Um, and one of the really cool things about that was was that I was working with graduates from our department that were doing the modeling and graduates um, and they were working in consultancy and with the NTA. So there was a really strong team um, that looked at this problem from the bottom up. Um, I suppose then what was my advice? What did I, I expect? I suppose it was the delivery of the big public transport projects. Um, I was a little bit disappointed that they're they're not being delivered as quickly as possible. Um, but the advice that the, the GDA strategy gave was that we need to spend um, I think it was 35 billion on public transport infrastructure out to 2042 in order to achieve our climate um, um, change targets. And that includes bus networks, um, and metro and underground for the city and all the way down to, you know, increased cycling and walking. So that was, you know, everything needs to be done. If we're to meet our emissions targets, we have to throw the kitchen sink at it. So absolutely everything needed to be done. At the same time, um Anybody who's lived in this country a long time or was born here uh, will be sceptical about our ability to carry through on these kind of grandiose plans that we regularly come up with and never seem to to execute. I'm curious, if you were to throw the kitchen sink bit by bit, which bit would you throw first? I mean, is it cycle lanes or is it metro or is it electric buses or, you know, what 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 is the number one priority, I guess, if you decarbon? I, I suppose if I could only have one of the projects to, to be delivered quickly, it would be Bus Connects. And that's the project that will change the bus network across the whole city. And um, it will also include um, improvements in pedestrian um, ways across the city and also cycle tracks across the city. And it's not the one that, you know, gets the big headlines because um, it's not the rail system that everybody seems to be, you know, preoccupied by. But it's the one I think that will make the biggest impact across the city. Um, I would start building the metro now, um, you know. We've had 30 years of reports and engineers telling us that the the route of the metro to the airport and beyond um, will be viable. Um, and all that's happened in the interim is that we've had more reports and to do the project has gotten even more expensive. Um, so I think, you know, there's no better time than now to start that project. And I think government, um, from, from what I'm hearing at least, are behind that project. I, I know you're not the spokesman for for... Dublin Transport, but I've never personally understood this that the airport metro. You know, in, in in many European cities, that's been almost the last piece of the the metro jigsaw. You know, airports tend to be typically far away from built-up areas, basically not very sustainable. Very nice for tourists coming in, but not for citizens of the city. Is it really the case that we need a metro to Dublin Airport rather than you know linking linking? Uh, the main population areas. I just don't understand that particular part of um, No, you're right. And a lot of cities, the, the link to the airport has been the last thing. But I suppose the airport is on a corridor to the north of the city that has been underserved by public transport for decades and has been wrapped up in this, um, I suppose, project for a long time. And nothing else has been delivered um, because everyone assumes this metro is going to be delivered. The the airport is a stop on that line. It is not the, the, the main destination of that line. Um, it goes through Fingal, which is one of the fastest growing counties um, in, the, in, in the country. Um, and the population and the 
the population that is built up at that side of the city is at a level now that it does require a metro. So when we look at this in a transport model, we look at the population growth, we look at the predicted spikes in employment along the line, and we can see very easily that that side of the city needs this. And it's not just about the airport. Right. So the airport is just not strictly relevant to this. It's the metro linking the north side with the city centre in the same way that the DART has linked parts of the city. But and and why would we not build overland? Just just remind me what what it's in, in in the city centre. Obviously, it's it would be the the space isn't there. And this is one of the things I always say to my students and to anybody that that, that will listen to me about transport is that we don't have a transport problem in this city. We have a space problem. Um, we don't have the space to build this type of infrastructure overland. So underground is the only way to do it, to get out past, um, just out past DCU, and then it would come over ground in certain, spe- in certain spaces around there. Um, the other thing about going underground is that you're not interfering with existing traffic. Um, you are away from existing traffic and the, the system can run on an awful lot more smoothly and you get the travel times um, that, that are required. Um, so that's why underground is the first thing that would be the, the, the ideal thing to do through the city centre. But it comes at a huge price tag um, and uh, and also a, a very large time frame in terms of constructing such a project. So the, the, the first priority you believe is 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 bus connect, is bus corridors um, that, that, that would basically make buses more reliable. Is that is that kind of an and more is that the it, exactly the, exactly it would make buses more reliable. It would make them more attractive. Um, it would um, bring more people into the bus network. Um, it's, it, it would enhance what's currently there. And Dublin bus and buses have been the workhorse in terms of public transport in this city for decades. And it's, I suppose, looking at that even further. And we, like, even today, I saw that Dublin bus are looking to to hire an extra 500 drivers, mechanics, and engineers. So that type of growth in the bus network hasn't been seen in decades. So that's a it's a great thing to see. Um, and, and the thing about the bus network improving like this is that it's much more flexible and um, we're able to bring services to places that if they don't work, then, you know, you could divert certain bus services, etc. So it's it, it's much more flexible and much more dynamic. You've done a lot of research into cycling as well. I, I, I noticed what, 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 what are your conclusions around the bike and the humble bike and what role does that have to play in, in all of this? And what, what, what what's the role of... I suppose electric scooters and electric bikes <laughs> open up uh, cycle lanes to many people who haven't previously used them. Yeah, so the bike is a very important um, um, mode of transport in our city. And I've been working quite closely, actually, with Healthy Trinity on this and, and with the, a remit from the Provost. We've been pushing for um, um, segregated cycle tracks to connect our campuses and to and to enable our students to get onto our campus. Um, and one of the things we're very proud about this work with, with the Healthy Trinity and the Smarter Travel um, um, grouping is that 99% of people get to our campus by not using a car. Um, cycling is really important. It's healthy, it's safe, you know, sorry, it's healthy, it, it's cheap to deliver in terms of other modes of public transport. But the key thing is to make it safe and to encourage people to use it by making it safer. And that's one of the things that I've looked at, looked at the data around accidents and looked at the preferences people have in terms of what type of infrastructure that they want on the roads. 
Um, electric bikes offer us an opportunity to increase the range at which we can cycle, you know, that we could cycle maybe out to 10 kilometers or maybe even further and, and, and enable people to get into the city um, or different parts of the city. And there's a project that I'm working on with ESB that's looking at that. We're, we're building a number of um, mobility hubs um, around the M50 that people could drive to their drive to these hubs with their electric vehicle and get onto a shared electric bike into the city centre. So you're decreasing the congestion um, and then also reducing emissions. And then you asked about the, the, the scooters. Um, I've yet to see the data on the scooters from cities that really convince me that they're a good thing to add to our city um, in terms of the mix. Um, yep. They're obviously a lot better than a car, um, but a lot of the research that I've seen coming from the States and from other cities that have had them for a longer period of time is that they tend to cannibalize walking trips and cannibalize cycling trips. So you're increasing your carbon footprint. That's kind of, that's, that's, that's very, very curious. And tell me, with cycle lanes, because our cycle lanes are so different to most other countries, you know, all these as a cyclist, personally, I find them very distracting and very un, unpleasant to cycle next to. But is that that the situation is just different here to, say, continental Europe? Or is it that um, there are so many people driving around with poor driving ability that, that they're necessary? Or what, what do you do? You know, do you understand why? Why? Are different to kind of conventional cycle lanes? I, I think they're necessarily evil um, for a transition period and that's what we're in when it comes to cycling. When right. it comes to cycling where we're doubling the numbers of people cycling over the past number of years and then with COVID, COVID was the great the great hope for cycling that you know the, the amount of infrastructure that we put in during COVID um, around cycling um, we're designing them differently because we're adding so many cyclists to the network so quickly um, and both all road users need to be aware of who's on the road. But when you introduce any new mode of transport, especially at the, the volume at which we're, we're hoping to add cyclists, there needs to be forgiving measures on the roads. There needs to be these, you know, bollards or orcas, as they're called, on the roads to basically, I suppose, police the, 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 the road space and that everybody knows um, uh, who has what space within the road network. Um, and that's something that is, um, it has been slow um, um, and there have been, you know, an awful lot of very high profile cases where cycling infrastructure, for whatever reason, mainly political, were not put in place. Um, and that's disappointing. Um, but we're in a transition, like any transition period, we're all learning. And that's what's happening, I think, with cycling at the moment. And where, where, where does the electric car fit into all of this, Brian? Is it, uh, you know, a lot of people are obviously buying electric cars at the moment and thinking of buying them uh, but there is this kind of concern that they they're not really that the pollution is just being put elsewhere rather than really being reduced i mean wh wh where do you stand on electric cars do you mind my asking do you have one yourself i do i do have an electric car i got it recently enough um, um i don't drive all that often um hmm. but you know i felt given what I talk about all the time, you know, if I were to have a car, it had to be electric um, and, and, and it is nice. Um, where do I stand on electric cars? Um, I've got a couple of issues around them. You know, yes, you know, people do talk about the pollution or the, the carbon just moving from one place to the other. Um, and that's a fair point. There's also issues around the ethics around electric cars and how the lithium is 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 mined in certain countries um, to provide for these electric cars. 
Um, but they're, I suppose they're not my areas of expertise. One of the things that I, 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 I've published a lot on and I've been in the media recently talking about is the, the, the equity impacts of electric vehicles mm. that the research that we've conducted in Trinity, and it was actually a joint project with Queen's University in Belfast, we showed that, you know, the people in Ireland that have electric cars are living in the most affluent areas. They're in the areas with the best provision of public transport um, and they have the highest incomes. So from my from from my perspective, those are the people that do, do not need a grant for an electric car, um, where I would much rather see grants for electric cars go to would be to the parts of rural Ireland that do not have public transport alternatives, drive longer distances. And that's where our emissions are. And that's those are the emissions we need to go after. Um, the other thing about the car, even if it's electric or whatever, however we're fueling it, it's a really wasteful resource. It spends about 90 percent of its time parked. Um, so when you look at government subvention for an electric vehicle, we wouldn't be putting money into a wind turbine that was only operating 10 percent of the time. So I really do think that, you know, that there's a, a mind shift that needs to happen around electric vehicles. Um, it doesn't seem to be happening quick enough, uh, as far as I can see. And, you know, we've got this what? target of almost right. a million electric cars by 2030. And that's going to cost a heap, uh, 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 at least 10 billion euro to achieve. And that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, we can't. If I were, if I were a betting man, I'd say no. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I suppose that neatly brings us to, you know, just at the beginning when we were talking, you 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 talked about the plans to reduce carbon emissions by, was it 51% by 2030? So yeah, that's, that's now in the legislation. And when was that legislation passed? Uh, a year or so, was it? That was legislation that was passed just before Christmas. Um, yeah. And it's groundbreaking legislation. And it, it is fantastic to have that enshrined. So it kind of, you know, it puts this large, daunting task of the transport sector to do this with, with speed. It is really daunting. Because even during COVID, when nobody seemed to be trying, uh, the amount of carbon being emitted didn't go down that much. Uh, in, in transport, it dropped by 17% during COVID. Once that's when... 17%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's tiny, really, isn't it? When it you is. think to reduce it by 51, three times that in, in the next uh, eight years or so. Um, what am I missing here? I mean, the people who drew up this legislation must have believed that at some level it's it's possible. Is it is it possible? And and what would we have to do? What does it look like? What does the, few, the next eight years look like if we are to meet our targets, I guess, is one way of um i assume they, they they did believe that that it that it was possible what did the next eight years look like um what they look like is that we fundamentally change how we work um and where we work um and we work more remotely i don't think remote working is the, is the silver bullet that people think it is um but that's one of the things that that, that will help decarbonize transport we invest massively in public transport at the moment the commitment is two to one um so for every um, euro spent in transport, two of them will go to uh, public transport and one to private transport. I'd like to see what I'd like us to see what the uh, us follow what the Welsh government have done. They've promised not to build any new roads until they get to a time at, at which the, the electric cars have gotten to a point that they, it won't end up increasing carbon. That's one of the things we need to do. Um, but the the next eight years look like a lot of debate around what we should be doing a lot more cycling um coming into play and a huge investment in public transport is there this is a personal bugbear of mine but but is there any evidence that 
that the extremely high prices, especially of trains in this country, uh, are deterring people from taking public transport. Like if I go to Limerick, it costs me something like 80 euros on the train. I have six people. I couldn't possibly, I'd have to be a millionaire to bring my family to Limerick for the day. It would cost a thousand euros, whereas I can do it for 50 euros in the car. How, you know, how much is that part of the problem that that children have to pay two or three euros to get a bus old people don't have to pay anything um and mm. you know as long as that happens people are going to drive their children to school aren't they um i think around school travel i think you know we need a better bus network th- uh, around that to make that work better i do think public transport costs could come down i do think that the interurban rail um uh, public transport costs could go down if you wanted to go to Kerry this weekend it would be probably cheaper for michael o'leary to bring you there in a plane yeah. than it would be to go by go by an irish rail um train which is criminal um that that, that, that that's allowed to happen um so, yeah, I do think that public, the cost of public transport should go down. Um, we, there have been examples across Europe where public transport has been made free. Um, it does increase um, um, the use of public transport. But what I would prefer to see us to be, would be to be a bit more clever about it um, and incentivize the times of the day where we want people to use more public transport. So at weekends and the off-peak periods and where people are, you know, driving out of habit to go to shops or to the cinema or whatever it is, um, that's when I'd like to see public transport um, priced in a way that it would attract more people. So kind of dynamic pricing uh, off trains at rush hour, but, but onto them in the, as you say, in the evenings. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's like, you know, 25% of all the trips we make on an annual basis are to work. So 75% of everything we do in terms of, of transport is not to work. And it's it's cracking that 75% is the key to, to reducing our emissions. That explains then, I suppose, why why the emissions was didn't fall further during COVID, isn't it? That there's really only work journeys that stopped, although of course we were all limited to our five kilometers and our two kilometers and so on. When you when you talk to government, when you talk to other people, when you talk to friends and family, are there many things that strike you as kind of counterintuitive that, that the public people like me believe, but, but are fundamentally wrong about how we might decarbonize our, our lives? Um, what, what, what I suppose specifically when it comes to transport, I suppose the one thing that, you know, our electric vehicles, that's one of the things that that's maybe not that it's a myth that's out there, but, you know, that they, they can do the amount of decarbonisation that we think that they can do. I think the main thing when I speak to friends or anybody about transport and, and decarbonisation is that people really, I don't think, have fully grasped how much we have to do in eight years um, and what the impact is going to be if we don't. Um, that's the thing that that, that strikes me a lot. Um, and, and like, I, I surround myself with like-minded people and, you know, we, we don't always talk about transport, but the urgency that's required for this problem, you know, it should be like, you know, we did declare this a, a national emergency um, and we're not acting like we're in a national emergency at, at every level. Um, um, and that's the thing that frightens me. Um, um, and, and that's the thing I think that, you know, the, the penny hasn't dropped really yet on. I, can, I hear fair about friends going off on weekends away like I I, tra- I travel a lot with, with conferences and all the rest and I think after COVID I've really started to reconsider that type of travel but when you hear about friends going for weekends to Paris or to rugby matches or reverend flying left right and centre 
they're doing that at the expense of what their children and their grandchildren will, will be able to do. Um, and I, I fundamentally believe that um, to decarbonize um, aviation is a really difficult thing to do. And the amount of aviation that's still happening and seen as a success factor that, you know, you can fly left, right and centre is something that needs to change. And yet we're talking in, in to, coming towards the end of the first month of the invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, energy spiked, and, and the government's first reaction is to reduce exercise duty, isn't it? To 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 keep carbon fuel cheap, and not to let people feel the effects of their own decision. To yeah. face, let's not mince words here. Fuel uh, Putin's war machine. Why? I mean, it, it's it's very interesting to hear you frame it in this kind of moral way because it so really is, and yet this is a deeply moral issue, isn't it? It, it's massively so. And, you know, one of the things, again, it was something I spoke about, uh, is the price of, of fuel at the moment. Petrol prices are going to increase, um, obviously not to the, the, the shock that we're having at, at the moment because of the dreadful things that are happening in the Ukraine. Um, but petrol prices are going to increase. I know I think it was it got to two euro a litre for for for, uh, for petrol. That could go to four to five, et cetera, towards the end of the decade. But we're experiencing these prices, these price increases now when we haven't decarbonized. If we don't decarbonize over the next eight years, the, the, the cost of energy and the cost of moving the way we currently do will be prohibitive. Um, so that's why we have this eight years and it's not enough because we've done so little for so long to decarbonize our transport sector. Um, and in eight years time then that the, the pain around the increase in costs of fuel may not be as bad um, if we start to act now. Uh, really as a final question Brian and I know this goes beyond your your, your expertise as a, a kind of decarbonization expert in the transport area but but it is essential to all of this and I'm sure you've thought about it. Obviously to do this we have to have reliable sources of renewable energy renewable energy and uh, there has been quite a lot of talk over the last few months that, that there wasn't enough wind during the summer and therefore we have a shortage of renewable energy. And so on. Are you, as an engineer, as a civil engineer, are you fully persuaded that, uh, that the technologies that will enable this, that will make it possible to, 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 to live on electricity generated by renewable energy, are you kind of fully persuaded that the technologies are there now? Um, uh, if I had some of my colleagues here with me, I'd pass the phone. Um, um, <laughs> um, there's certain, yes, wind doesn't blow all of the time, but you know, this is where we need to start to get into power storage. Um, and that's kind of the idea of around electric vehicles that they can be stores of power and they can give back to the grid, um, and things like that. I do think the, I do think that the, the renewable technologies are there, um, there's a lot of debate, uh, and I hear this from colleagues from UCC, as to whether or not we should start to look at nuclear again as, 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 a, as a clean energy alternative. I think all, all options are on the table. Um, uh, all I'm convinced by is, you know, fossil fuels and burning them for electricity generation. You know, that's that's the thing that's been phased out. But also, we need we will need more electricity than ever before. Um, a third of it will we'll need an extra third for our um, our electric vehicles. I think something like that as well then to heat our homes with heat pumps. Um, so we're going to need a lot of much more electricity than we're currently generating. Um, that will happen with some of the plans with the offshore wind farms, um, and that's going to be our biggest you know source of of of, of energy. Um, 
But that sector of the economy, that sector of decarbonisation is happening quite quickly. And, you know, there's a lot of successes in that, um, that I think, you know, that the, the government or past government should be proud of, but it needs to happen quicker. The technologies around it, you know, that there's, there's, there's great colleagues of mine in my department and across the School of Engineering that are looking into this. And, you know, any students that are interested in, you know, finding out the best ways to do it, you know, that there's many courses within within engineering and across STEM um, um, to look at how to do this better. It's, it's very interesting to think of engineering as uh, the solution to to the crisis, isn't it? It's probably not quite touted that way anymore. It's, it's uh, I mean, but you are all all engineers problem solvers almost by by definition yeah but but like even across stem and other areas across college as well every you know you know these problems that we're coming up with or how we interpret the problems as well i think is important you know to what extent is what we're facing outside of you know the, the current energy crisis how we interpret these problems. I remember being before COVID, the last talk I think I gave in college at, a, at an evening event was over in the long room hub and I was talking with, you know, an artist and she was talking about, you know, transport through the artist's eye, whereas I was talking about it from, you know, a, a technology perspective and listening to other people um, and looking at their, imp- at, at, I suppose, their inputs into, into your own specific field really kind of, you know, makes you take a step back and think about it differently and then hopefully come up with better solutions. So it's a problem that we that we all have to solve. But uh, I think it's fair to say thank you very much for for your work in, in, in solving it. It really is a relief to, to know that people are thinking about this in a kind of a, a non-dogmatic and pragmatic way, uh, as you have done. Dr. Brian Crawford, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.